All right. Good morning, Orangewood. Good to see you. Good to see all of you. It's been a long time. Uh, I've been uh, uh, on the, uh, as a Bible teacher, as the Exodus happens. I love this. I love the energy. I've been on uh, the Bible teaching tour. I was a Bible teacher for the Footsteps of the Apostles cruise. And so first time ever being on a cruise, first time being gone that long. And uh, it was a great, uh, great opportunity. Went from Rome to Malta, uh, to uh, Rhodes, to Israel, to Israel, to Crete. And then back to Athens. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a great time, great trip, but I'm glad to be back. And uh, got a whole lot to, uh, that I learned, and hopefully we had a, a great time and those who came with us. Listen, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, knowing Jesus, isn't it wonderful to know Jesus? The more you know, the more you are transformed by Jesus Christ. As David Jeremiah said, the reality is we never get beyond our level of knowledge of him. And so our level of knowledge of him defines us as he continues to transform us. So we're going to look in the gospel of Mark. Before we do that, let's quickly bow our heads and hearts once again in prayer. Our great God, it is so good to come into your presence today to experience the energy of worship with your people to be in your presence and knowing that as you gather, you're in our midst, Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that reality. We thank you that we're never alone. You said uh, I would, you would be with us always, even to the end of the age. And we know that's true. We know that you're here now. And as we just sang this song, we desire, we really desire that you have all of us. You have our whole heart that we completely give ourselves to you. You're worth all of that. And so as we come now, we ask that you would open our minds to your truth, that spirit of the living God fall fresh on us. Do something unique in this time. And so we pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins and use one who's finite to communicate your infinite truth. For we truly have come to hear your voice today. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we continue in Mark, you know, the reality is that life goes on and on and on. And, and, and everybody has a story that you brought into this place today. And quite frankly, there are times in our life where we wonder, God, where are you? And maybe if you had one of those experience this week, you feel a little dry. God, where are you? Jesus, you are the king. I know you're the king. The tomb is empty, so is the cross. You're the king, but are you working? What are you doing? A friend told me a story the other day that uh, illustrates this whole idea, and I gotta tell you in advance, it was probably given to me by an Episcopalian pastor, so there it is. Count that in. So this little guy has had a rough, rough uh, day, a rough, rough week, and he's, he's sitting in a bar staring at his drink, just staring down at that drink for about an hour. And, 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 and he can't do anything. And all of a sudden, this guy comes in, and this big biker guy, who's kind of a mean-looking dude, he comes walking in, picks up the guy's drink, drinks it down, and the little guy just dissolves in tears on the bar. And, and, and the biker's really kind of a nice guy. He's kind of a soft guy. He says, hey, man, I, listen, I hate to see a guy cry. I didn't really mean to do anything. I was just giving you a rough time. What's the matter? And the little guy said, this has been the worst day of my life. I had an appointment this morning and I missed it and so my boss fired me. 
And then, and then I, I went out to drive home and my car had been stolen. I don't have any insurance. Said, then I Ubered home and got home and I'd left my wallet in the car and then walked into the house and my wife had moved out and then the dog bit me. This is the worst day of my entire life. I've been here for 30 minutes just trying to, to wind up, getting the courage to, to take my own life, and you come in here and drink the poison. Gosh, I just... <laughs> Quite frankly, I didn't know how you would respond on that. But we have those days, though. I mean, we do have those days. We have those weeks where we just want to say, oh, Lord, what is going on? It's enough. I don't need any more of this. I've had those days. You've had, I had one of those weeks. I had a good week in our ministry. It was a great week in our ministry. And then toward the end of the week, I've been totally disconnected. I'm between cell phones. They don't know who my identity is. Frankly, I don't know who my identity is anymore. My, my, my computer went to be with Jesus. I am totally disconnected. And I'm not sure you can do ministry at all without a, a phone and a computer. I'm wondering. And, and that's nothing compared to what some of you guys are going through. I'll take your phone. Yeah, they, oh, no, it's the Bible. Oh, trying to convict the preacher, huh? So the, so the reality is we have, we have those times. We have those days. God, are you at work? Are you working in my life? Is there anything really going on? Some people have this mantra, Lord, give me coffee to change the things I can change and wine to accept the things I can't. <laughs> we have those days, we have those weeks where we do ask the question, God, are you at work? Jesus, I know theoretically you're the king, but are you still at work? And the answer is emphatically yes. And the text we're going to look at today, the sower, is completely a text that teaches that the king is at work. God is doing something even though you may think he's not. Even though you're going through a dry spell. Even though you don't know if God is working, he's at work. And so we're going to look at the parable of the sower. For many of you, it's a familiar one. But for many of us, we need it uh, to remind us that the king is still king and God is still at work. So I've got three basic points for you from this. We're going to take a look at the story, at the parable briefly. And then we're going to look at the truth, the big idea or big ideas behind this parable, and then we're going to look at some appropriation. We're going to see, uh, look at our hearts and how we can take it all home. So if you have your Bibles, here we go. Uh, take a look with me, first of all, at the story, and I'm going to read Mark 4, 1 through 9. This is God's holy word. Again, he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. What sea is it? Galilee. Sea of Galilee. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. Now, the original Greek is interesting here because it says, listen. And then it says, behold, listen, watch, listen, watch. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, 
it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up uh, and, and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the first idea here is to, uh, what I briefly want to do is just to unpack a little bit about the story. And it is a story. This is a made-up story. Uh, it's a parable that comes from real life. And when Jesus uh, often taught, he often taught in parables, as, as many of you know, if you've read the New Testament uh, for a long period of time. Now, this, this is interesting because it starts out in verses 1 through 3, giving us some historical detail historical detail that many of you have read before and you look at and you say, okay, you've read, you've read it so much that it's no big deal for you. Uh, verse one, he began to teach by the sea, a large crowd. So he got into a boat. He's in the boat and he sat on it and, and he was teaching them many things in parables. So, so what this teaches us here by all of this detail is that this was really written by an eyewitness, wasn't it? And this is important for us to understand because many people say that the New Testament was written 150, 200 years after Jesus. The early church wrote this. No eyewitnesses wrote this. And for those of us living in the, the beginning of the 21st century, we've got skeptics everywhere around us. And they say to us, yeah, the Bible can't be trusted. The Bible is filled with inaccuracies. The Bible was written 100, 200, 300 years after, and you can't be trusted. I was on this cruise, and like I said, I was a Bible teacher, and it was great. Uh, we're in the Mediterranean. One night, we didn't have our room, so we're teaching on deck 10, which is an eating area toward the back. I said, let's all meet there. So we had about 30 to 60 people meeting in this area. And uh, we just teaching and uh, teaching the Bible. And afterwards, uh, everybody in our group goes to the in, uh, evening entertainment on board ship. And uh, this guy comes up to me and goes, hey, I was listening to what you said. Could we sit and talk? I said, sure. So we sat down. My wife looked at me and knew this was not going to be short. So she took off. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so... So the guy starts out, he goes, I have a couple of questions about what you said, but first of all, I want you to know that the Bible is, is filled with contradictions. I don't trust the Bible. It's filled with contradictions. And I said, oh, really? How, how many times have you read the Bible? He says, about 10. I said, oh, okay, good. I said, I opened my Bible and I turned it toward him and I said, would you please show me one contradiction? Yeah, it was that quiet. He looked at me like I was from Mars. He, he didn't want to interact with that. He didn't want to do that. And, and so we went toe to toe. We got heavy into apologetics for about 35 minutes. And I look up about halfway through and there's one of our ladies, she's sitting in the shadows in the corner and I'm going, man, I wonder if I was nice enough. I wonder if I was too harsh on this guy. So afterwards, when he finally looked at me and he said, hey, listen, I like you, but I gotta go. I walked over to her and I said, was I mean? Or she said, no, you were just telling them the truth. I said, well, that's what I wanted to do. You know, you know, quite frankly, can we talk? I'm tired. I'm tired of people saying inane things about Christianity and the gospel that simply aren't true. And they have to be stopped. 
We need Christians who are willing to say things to people in a nice way to stop them, like, like the Bible was written 200 years later. And we can come back and say, you know, you know, really, the Bible is filled. The Gospels are filled not with uh, contradictions. Uh, apparently, there are, there, there are some apparent contradictions, but they can all be resolved. You got some time? Let's go through it. And, and we need to understand that the Bible is filled. The Gospels are filled with what, with what Richard Bauckham, the British theologian, says are irrelevant details of history. Because irrelevant details of history prove that the eyewitness was there to put the irrelevant details of history down in the text. Can you trust the Bible? Of course you can. Tim Keller says, composed fictional stories contain details that move the narrative along or convey the message that the author wants to get across. But eyewitnesses record many details simply because they remember them. I don't want you to forget that. And I want you to allow God to embolden you next time somebody says the Bible is filled with all kinds of contradictions. Turn to them your Bible and say, show me. And if they show you one you can't answer, come back and ask Pastor Joe. <laughs> you clapped for him. He has the answers. The reality is, is, is that there are answers to every question, and we don't have to be afraid of that. Now, real quickly about the parable. A parable is, is an earth, earthy, earthly story, right, with a spiritual meaning. That's what a parable is. It's an, and, and most parables that Jesus gives have one major idea. That's the way it almost is completely in all of the parables Jesus gives. Don't look for all of the parables to become allegories. Look for one major idea. What's the big earthy spiritual idea that Jesus is trying to get across? Now, having said that, let me say this. This is an allegory because it's got more than one big idea and it's got many different individual parts uh, that need interpretation and Jesus fortunately gives us those interpretations. So let me ask you. Is this the parable of the sower? Don't answer yet. Or is this the parable of the seed? Or is this the parable of the soils? The sower, the seed, or the soils? <laughs> it really is. It's kind of all of them. But what's the biggest idea here? What's the biggest idea? Let's take a look. Let's take a look. That's our second point. Let's look at the truth and look for the big idea here. Now, I want to read to you Jesus' interpretation of his own parable, Mark 4, verses 14 through 20. Here we go. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60-fold, and 100-fold. 
Now, there, there really is this idea here in this text that, this, that the big idea of this parable could be the parable of the sower, that it really is about the one who comes to bring the word. And as Francis Schaeffer wrote in his book, he is, he is there and he is not silent. We know that because of Jesus Christ coming into the world, God is here and he is not what? He's not silent. God has come. And so there's a very real sense in which we can say that God is the sower or our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God come in the flesh, is the sower. And you say, that's a crazy way to sow seeds. That's the way they did it in the first century. They didn't plow first. They just went around throwing the seed. That's the way they did it. They just cast the seed. And so God is the sower and there, Jesus is the sower. And, and in a very real way, we understand that God has come. So the parable of the sower is a very important reminder that we are not alone, that there is a king, that he has come. And I don't know what stage of life you're in right now, but we need a king. We always need a king. We need a Lord. We need a savior. We need a redeemer. We need a leader. And he has come and he is here. And this is a big deal because we live in the world that doesn't really emphasize that. I'm so glad for Orangewood School and Geneva School and Master's Academy and homeschooling. You guys that give the truth to your kids because I'll tell you, in most of our schools out there, the religion is science. Uh, more carefully, scientism. Scientism. Read J.P. Moreland's book on scientism, and you'll get the idea of what I'm trying to say is that what scientists are saying, or what those who live in a secular framework say, is that the only thing that can be absolutely trustworthy, the only way to absolute truth is what science can discover. And J.P. Moreland comes back and says, that's interesting, because that comment that the only truth that can be trustworthy is discovered by science, cannot be proven by science. It can only be proven by philosophical discussion and religious discussion. And so the statement that we are, we are so influenced by is absolutely irrelevant. So the only way to truth is not by just what science can uncover under the microscope or in research. There are other means of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And, and so it's important for us to understand this because we live in a world that takes by faith that scientism, that's a religion, is the only way to truth. But the sower has come. The sower has come. God has come. He who created this planet has come. He's the king and he's come. And he's still here. Because after the resurrection, what did he say? It's, he said, it's good for me that I go. I'll send my spirit and I will be with you. What? Always. Always. The king is here. So the big idea may be really the, 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 the story, the reality of the sower. But it could also be the seed. That the sower casts the seed. A big idea here could be that it's the seed, the word, the truth, the gospel has come. 
And this is, this is a crucial idea for us to understand because Jesus came to give us truth. The truth will set us free, and it is the word that sets us free, isn't it? Lies put us in bondage every day. Truth always sets us free. A good friend of mine admitted this week that he was an alcoholic. And we finally got together later in the week, and uh, I heard the word. And, uh, and so he said, he said, man, I said, are you doing all right? He said, I'm free. I'm free now because the truth is out. I got nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And he is a Christian. He's got Jesus. He's free. Truth always does that to you. And so the word of God is powerful. That's what we live on. And so the big idea is that the seed has come. Psalm 119 has how many verses? 150 plus. I should know. I'm a preacher, but there it is. I love Psalm 119 because every time you turn around, the psalm writer is saying, I love your rules. I love your law. I love your precepts. I love your commandments. Why? Because it's the way to live. The law shows us our need for a savior, but it also shows us the way to live Oh, I wish I could tell you some more stories of guys in our ministry who live incredibly complicated life because of stupid things they've done. It puts Dateline to shame. And I've watched a lot of those with my wife. In fact, my wife has seen so many Dateline, she could kill somebody in our family and never get caught. I, I, the reality is the seed is... The sower has come and he's given us the truth. But I, I think, and I agree with uh, those other Bible teachers that say that the soils is probably the biggest idea here. And so the, the story is, uh, the, the parable unpacks this big idea that, that there are different responses to the gospel as the seed is sown. And everybody here who's ever shared the gospel, you know this is true, don't you? that every time you share the gospel, there are different responses to the gospel. Sometimes you share Jesus with somebody and they go, huh? Like Paul on Mars Hill. We want to know more about this. Seems like, sounds like you're talking about some foreign deities here. Um, but, but a lot of times when you share the gospel, people go, that's really nice. I'm glad it works for you. Um, and so we hear all kinds of stuff, so many different responses to the gospel. But but. That's a reality. So what are the responses to the gospel? Well, if, if the sower casts the seed, and if you and I happen to be in that role of casting the seed of the gospel out to other people, we have to understand that some people have unresponsive hearts, that they are simply unresponsive hearts to the gospel. Why? Because it's like uh, uh, the gospel put on a path and Satan comes along and steal it. And yes, we have a very real enemy and his name is Satan. He's not on an equal level with God but he has a team that works with him. It's a very effective team. They've had centuries of work. And, and you know, sort of our problem is overestimating Satan. And our, our other side of the problem is underestimating him. We have an enemy. And when we present the gospel, sometimes the enemy comes along and absolutely steals the gospel out of somebody's heart uh, because, because he knows how to convince them and to distract them. Uh, and so that's the real world. We just need to understand. So we got to give them the, the truth and realize that some people won't respond really well.
So they're unresponsive hearts. They're also impulsive hearts that when they hear the gospel. We might call them superficial hearts. Uh, that's verses 16 and 17. The rocky ground with limestone underneath. How much of Israel is made of topsoil with limestone underneath? All of it. <laughs> up north, it's basalt. It's darker stuff up north. It's, it's lighter down south. But everywhere you go, there's rocky soil. There's a few patches uh, of fertile ground there. But they're impulsive grounds. And what Jesus is telling people is that, is, that, is that what drives people away from the gospel sometimes is tribulation and persecution. When you suffer... You and I have the tendency to move away from God. If God is good, we're going to do a series at Forge uh, coming up here in December. It's a two-week series called Skeptics Forum. I got to stack that high of questions that I'm going to try and deal with. And, and, and about half of them are in this category. If God is good, why do relatively good people suffer? The theodicy, the problem of evil. You've heard of it before. It's our real everyday life that we suffer and suffering has the tendency to move us away from God. Persecution, when we stand up for Jesus. Uh, I, I'm, I'm reading this book called The Spy and the Traitor, The Greatest Espionage Story of the Cold War. So good. I got it in Montreal in my seven hour layover. If I go with you, Joe, we're never going to do a seven hour. Promise me that. Okay, thank you. That's what he says. One of Stalin's spy masters had this advice for his officers seeking to recruit spies in Western countries. Search for people who are hurt by fate or nature. Look for the ugly, those suffering from an inferiority complex, craving power and influence, but defeated by unfavorable circumstances. In cooperation with us, all these find a peculiar compensation the sense of belonging to an influential and powerful organization will give them a feeling of superiority over the handsome and prosperous people around them. The KGB looked for, and all spy recruiters look for people who are vulnerable. Who does Satan look for? People who are vulnerable. And so the reality is, is that tribulation and persecution uh, have a peculiar input in driving people away from Jesus if they have not gone deep in their discipleship. If they have stayed light, I'm going to church now. I never did that before. I even read the Bible once in a while. And you know what? I give something at church once in a while. So radical. But, but if you stay there, then you watch for the twin demons of persecution and tribulation, because they can, they can be used to take you right away. And some of the people we present the gospel to right away from Jesus Christ. Then there's also those who are preoccupied hearts, 18 and 19. The thorns come up, the thorns come up, choke them out. They're preoccupied people. Even some of those who like the gospel, they like the message, they get preoccupied with the world. I often say that in America, the devil is in the opportunities. There's a lot of other countries where the devil is in the paucity of opportunities, the lack of opportunities. There's nothing. I don't want to move to Sudan. 
There's nothing there. Well, unless I'm called to be a missionary and he could do that. But the reality is in America, we are so distracted. Like my dog, Jake, the boxer was, he was great. I love the guy. This was so distracted. He needed Jesus. I think he found it before he got him, but I don't know. Then there's the good soil. I love this. 30, 60, a hundredfold. Five to 10 to 15% was considered a good yield in the first century AD in terms of the crops. But Jesus is saying 30, 60, hundredfold. I love it. See, here's, I, I think this is probably the, the biggest idea here that there'll be different responses to the gospel. So thirdly, let me wrap this up by just giving some heart, heart um, appropriation, heart application something that we can go out of here with today and take this familiar uh, message from Jesus and apply it to our life. And the first thing would be to remember that the sower has come. So some of you are here today because a friend brought you and you've never been to church or you haven't ever been, you haven't been to church in a long time. Some of you are here today and you're wondering why you're even here. Because you said yes in a weak moment to a friend. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. What I want you to note is that what we're talking about is not that we're good, but that God has come. See, the church is not filled with perfect people. The church is filled 100% with imperfect people, right? Starting from right up here and moving all the way to the balcony. Well, we don't have a balcony. The back up there. I can't even see you back up there. You're in the shadows because you're hiding from something. <laughs> we're not. We're not perfect people. The reality is we're not. Uh, but Jesus is the sower. He is God come in the flesh and he's come. And so if you're looking for God, your, your journey in looking for God starts and ends with Jesus. You look no further. The sower has come. And I want you who have been Christians for a long time to keep in mind that the sower came from you, for you. And he knew you before the foundation of the world. And so as you go out of here uh, who've been following Jesus for a long time, remember, remember Jesus' words in John, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You didn't come after me until I enabled you to come after me. And that's why I love this reality of the sower, uh, that the sower has come and he came after us. And so this can be greatly encouraging as we think about uh, God's great love for us. Are you going through a dry time? Are you going through a frustrating time? Is Jesus still king? Answer, yes. Is he still at work? Answer, yes. Whether you feel it or not. Friday, my wife and I had our grandkids for 15 hours. <laughs> Saturday, I couldn't get anything connected technologically. So I cleaned the garage. I needed church this morning. <laughs> and this is so good. God is so good. Was he at work? He was at work. He is at work. He is at work in our lives. And so that's important for us to keep in mind. The second application to take out here is sow the seed, no matter the response you get. You see, it's easy for us when we get pushback ourselves from people who think we're nuts for following Jesus Christ, like this guy I was sitting on the boat with, uh, he finally got tired of talking to me because I, had a, I, I, I it just kept pushing back. But you know, the reality is people think you're crazy. Keep sowing the seed and find those who are responsive. Keep sowing the seed and then 
as we think about how to do that, we think about events here at church, Sunday, be, a radi- be radical, be a radical inviter. Just keep inviting people. Just keep saying, hey, let's get, to co- get together for coffee and talk about Jesus. Keep sowing the seed. Don't, res- don't worry about the responses because you don't change the hearts anyway. Jesus does. And then the last takeaway for us today is live from the inside out. And, 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 and really the best we can do is to understand that our job is to sort of uh, continue to cooperate with God and letting our hearts be the proper soil for him to continue to do the work, right? So we're converted, we're his, but we can cooperate now with him in, in keeping our hearts responsive to him. How do we do that? Doing what you're doing right here. Praise God, you're here, you're in church. And some of you are here like me, you had a worse week than me, but you're here. You're letting God reach your heart. You spend time in what I call a daily appointment with God. You listen to God in the morning. That's great, that's how it happens. You get into a community group because you need brothers and sisters. Yeah, all of these things. Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. May, say, Lord, every morning, Lord, just make my heart responsive to you and do your work, whatever it is. So my friend, um, Greg Love, is in our ministry, and he's a... Uh, firefighter in the city of Miami, big, tall, strapping guy, good guy. One time at the, it was about three years ago, at the executive airport, his unit got a call, and the call said, we got a bear in the tree. Trust me in this, this is no lie. There was a bear in a tree near the executive airport right off of Highway 50, and his unit was called, so they shot him with a tranquilizer dart. And they put a net underneath it, but they realized that that sucker falls out into that net, it's going to it's going to kill whoever's holding that net. And so, well, he came down, but he wasn't fully out. And my friend was right there. Greg wrestles this bear, who is drunk, frankly. And he gets him pinned. And I wouldn't believe it, because he's told me some other big hunting stories. I wouldn't have believed it if they didn't have it on video. (laughs) Golly. This week, you're not going to wrestle a bear. But trust me in this, you don't know what's going to happen this week. And there'll be some times where you'll wonder, is the king here? He is. And he's at work in you and around you. Don't let anyone tell you different, okay? You take it to heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said you would be with us always, even to the end of the age, and we believe it. Convince us again as we struggle, as we walk with you this week, we pray in your holy name. Amen.